So we are starting now with the reading and the comments further. We have reached to the 25th paragraph. And it is actually the last of the big paragraphs containing teachings of Jesus. The last two or three referring to the final events. Jesus is giving some of his final teachings. And many of these teachings refer to his second coming and to the fact that this second coming is at a day and an hour unknown and the things which you remember. The (coughs) chapter number 25 starts with the famous parable of the ten virgins. At that time, he means at the time of the end of days, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. First I'll read it all and then I'll come into parts of it because there are multiple meanings. At midnight the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, The bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The meaning, the general meaning is expressed, of course, in the last sentence. This simply means that if you choose too late, it simply may be too late. It may be that in the last minute a lot of people will get converted to religiousness, but it would be too late. It would be like a box fighter, like a boxer who is trying to train five minutes before the match because he discovered the opponent is a a formidable opponent. It's too late to train before the match. You are supposed to have trained your uh, much long before and therefore here it is obvious that the message is that at the moment that moment should not catch you unprepared and since that moment nobody knows it and it may be more or less any time then we come to the weird to the weird conclusion that basically one should be prepared all the time at any time one should be ready And uh, this is, of course, where the Boy Scout motto is coming, be prepared, because the Boy Scout organization, they started, theoretically at least, as a kind of pro-Christian organization with some militant mottos and so on. This message, however, gives us a few hints on some things. First of all, (coughs) we have this story with the oil in the lamps. 
<coughs> some of them had oil in the lamps and some of them did not have oil in the lamps. This analogy is better than many others because many people have compared the experiencing of high states of consciousness with like burning like a lamp, burning like a candle, burning like the wig of a lamp. And basically the idea being that somehow the spiritual practice is burning of yourself. Your aspiration is like an internal burning. And indeed, in many high states of consciousness, it feels exactly that way in practice. And that is why very often, paradoxically as it is, you feel that you cannot prolong some very high states of consciousness that you may have reached, actually because you haven't got enough oil, you haven't got enough vitality. So basically, ener the energy is a very, very important factor because the energy allows you the reaching of high states of consciousness and at the same time it is the energy which allows you to sustain them. That is why this kind of frantic aspiration has as its opposite exhaustion, that simply you can make vigil and sing and pray and be like Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, be completely wired up, but then the result of it is that you are simply wasting yourself, you are simply consuming yourself in a tremendous effort. It is actually a known thing that Ramakrishna Paramahamsa himself, when he was young, he was a very athletic and well-built man. He was doing Hatha Yoga and other things. And later, after he was 30 and he started reaching Samadhi after Samadhi, he lost weight. He became skinny and actually, if you look at his very last pictures, he's almost frightening. He looks almost frightening, like you can see someone who has burned from inside and burned and burned with such an intensity that the physical body has become almost like a ghost body or something like this. And in this way, the first uh, allusion, because as usual, the sayings of Jesus touch several levels of our being, the first allusion is obviously that comparing the human being to the burning lamps, and some lamps have the oil, the necessary energy, the necessary vitality, the necessary aspiration, while the others do not have it almost at all, because actually it says here somewhere that... Um, The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. That means they had some oil, but it was just the last drops. The lamps actually went on a little, but they are going out very quickly. So in this way, what I'm trying to say here is like this, the foolish virgins, uh, they did not have zero oil, they had very little oil and they were supposed to have plenty of it. Also, because they did not know exactly when the bridegroom will be arriving and therefore they had to be prepared at all times, they were just waiting there. This story with the foolish virgins is alluding to a lot of things, this kind of wise and foolish, it's obviously the virgins are the human beings in search of the enlightenment, in search of the reaching of uh, salvation of the ultimate, and the bridegroom is God himself. In this situation, it's almost like Jesus himself presents himself as that. And uh, therefore, the wise ones, they took jars and they had 
plenty of this uh, material, raw material, thus being enough for a long time. And therefore, the conflict is clear. Some people may choose in the last minute and say, well, yeah, we haven't got oil until now, but we are just going to buy quickly because now we really see that the man is coming. But then it was too late and then uh, they went to buy and when they came back, it seems like very unfair. After all, they were there to party. Uh, they were there to, to greet the bridegroom. But the bridegroom is strangely cruel at this because suddenly he says, they came to the door and they said, Sir, sir, open the door. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And basically they were just thrown uh, out. They were simply left out. That is simply showing that sometimes there are also uh, very special circumstances or moments. The door is open at some time and those who are prepared, they go in and then the door is closed. Look at it like this. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. It's like all the mystics have experienced that the bridegroom is sometimes long in coming. He is not coming immediately. Just because you pray three hours, it doesn't make God respond immediately. Sometimes they may pass, they have been mystics perhaps, have been praying for ten years or something and the bridegroom was not yet coming. And therefore, if your lamp is not enough for that, if you already lost the oil in your lamp, then you cannot have enough. So this oil in the lamp is both a measure of one's vitality and it is also a measure of one's jivatman. It is a measure of one's uh, enthusiasm and aspiration. And the conclusion is very clear. If it wouldn't be like this, it would actually be possible to fake the things because you would be indifferent till the last moment, not make any provision of anything spiritual, and in the last moment when you will see that the doomsday is coming, you would say, haha, I'm going quickly and learning some yoga, some meditation, I will be among those prepared. And Jesus says, don't try to fool around. Too late is simply too late. You cannot cheat in this miserable way. And that is why here it sounds almost sadistic, it sounds almost like cruel, like the bridegroom is truly an intolerant person here, but actually the meaning is a parable showing that we have to be endowed with what we need to be when our time is coming. And then Jesus continues in the same way with an even more disturbing one. This is indeed one of the things which shows that there is no peace, that there is no stationary point in this universe, that if you don't go up, you are falling down. Remember that Jesus often said, those who have the impression they don't go up, they are already going down. It's like there is no middle point. Some people say, I'm not with God, I'm not with the devil. I'm just taking a break. If you said, I'm not with God, then you definitely are with the devil, although maybe you didn't realize it, because the devil is clever not to show you that painful truth, so that you should have some reaction of defense. And that is why this is shown very, very clearly by the famous parable of the talent, which is a quite disturbing one. Because without this one, you could still say, well, I'm a nice person, I didn't kill anybody, I didn't do anything, I did a little bit of good here, I did a little, a little bit of good there, I should be okay. Now listen how Jesus puts it.
Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, that's again a symbol of God, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Give the earth to them, if you prefer, to the children of God, to the servants of God. To one he gave five talents of money, to another one two talents, and to another one one talent, each according to his ability. That means some receive more than others, and you can see in this world, in the distribution of vitality, intelligence, heartfulness and everything, that nature is not equal, but because people don't start from an equal level, and that's just natural. So, to each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Like accusing in this way God implicitly of something pretty imperialistic. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a very alarming parable because it says striking even is not good enough. If you give to God what you have received, it's not good enough. God is a bit of a Rothschild at this. He wants profit. He wants to gather where he has not sown or whatever. And this simile from the very mouth of Jesus concerning banking and interest is pretty stupefying when attributed to God and to a spiritual thing because it shows a cosmic law. It shows a mechanism that is difficult to understand. The explanation of this paragraph is this. The universal wheel of Dharma spins. The universe goes forward. The divine forces spin the wheel of evolution. This universe is made so that the spirits can evolve. If they do not evolve, it's not good enough. Staying is like losing, because staying is like the wheel has no use. If the spirits in this universe would stay, then the meaning of this universe would not be reached. 
This universe is a classroom. If people, if the pupils in the classroom, they don't learn, then the classroom can be demolished because it simply has no utility. So therefore, striking even, when I leave, I am as good as when I came, it's not good enough. Many people can say, I came good enough in this life, I didn't fall off I, the path, and then when I'm going, I'm as good as when I came. Not good enough. It's the outer darkness and the gnashing of the teeth, paradoxically. That means it sounds almost uh, cruel again, because what kind of master is that? He gave one talent, and the guy gave him back his talent. So what's the big deal? He didn't waste... If you would have done some ridiculous speculations or whatever, he would have lost the entrusted talent. Then he would have been in great trouble. So the man didn't want to take the risk. Well, you know, those who don't risk, don't win. You know the story, that he who doesn't make an attempt, at least has not made an attempt. The shipwrecked sailor is not the one who shipwrecked, but the one who didn't start the trip because of fear. If you sit and don't do it, that means people who do, do mistakes, but they never do the biggest mistake, that of doing nothing. Therefore, it's better to try to do something and even fail, rather than doing nothing just because you say, well, I don't know if it's safe enough. This kind of mentality of people who all the time sit and watch and they don't know to take a decision is terrible because it is like you are afraid to waste that talent. God gave you a talent and okay, you are not going down and wasting it. Some people are plainly wasting it and they are simply not caring and going down. But some people think that this middle position is safe enough. Oh, I'm not spending my talent, I'm just uh, uh, staying here. When God will ask for me, I will say, the goodness which you gave to me, I give back to you. The heart which you gave to me, I give back to you. The spirit which you gave to me, I give back to you. And it appears that that is not the case. God is looking upon the human life in terms of evolution. Did you evolve? Even, he said, you should have put them with interest. How much interest you would have got from a talent? Minor amounts. But still, there would have been some gain. The cosmic will was moving in one direction. Zero move is not good enough. 0.01 move, and it still would have shown some good will that at least the person has tried. And that is why, here Jesus is telling us implicitly, you have to work. This, in this universe, you cannot stay. In this life, you cannot wait. If you just wait and argue in the end, well, I didn't lose all the good things, that's not good enough. You didn't lose, you, strike, you are striking even, and striking even is not good enough at this. And that is a very, very disturbing parable, because it is the end of laziness and passivity. Every time when you want to be lazy and to give up, Remember this, giving up is not good enough. Staying stable and saying, look, I'm not practicing anymore, but at least I'm sure that I will stay a nice person. It's not good enough. God is an imperialistic one. Look what Jesus says. This man says, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. It's like God is a bit naughty, pushy, imperialistic. He wants to take over. He wants the universe to go one way. And he is kind of, you know, it's not only the demons that shamelessly push, 
but the divine consciousness also has the right to shamelessly push and to say more, more, whipping the creation in a certain direction. And therefore, the cosmic consciousness, yes, it is ex the cosmic consciousness is expecting some transformation. You don't give that transformation. This is called multiplying the talent. You don't multiply the talent. You simply don't give the fruit which it is, it is expecting. A tree can grow, but if it is not giving dates like Jesus or the fig tree, then Jesus said, dry down and die. You are a tree, but you live for nothing. You are not giving fruits. You are not producing. It is therefore necessary to somehow speaking, spiritually speaking, to produce, to multiply the talents. And that simply means that whatever you received from God has to be put to work to do some more, to do some more, to do some more. That you should become more, that you should develop more. And you can never say, well, I think I am kind enough. Kind enough is not good. That's the way you came. You have to become two times kinder than that, exactly as in the parable of the talents. If the end of this life catches you at the same level where the beginning of it was, you lost. That means stationary evolution is not good enough. The universe is not content with zero progress. It has to be something more. And that is a very unsettling thing because for many people would be, you know what, I can simply, I am the observing type of person. I am an individualist, a loner. I sit somewhere and look at the world in free fall and at least I am keeping my soul intact. Keeping your soul intact is not really good. You need to get some interest. You need to do some multiplication. That multiplication can be understood in a hundred ways, like great spirits felt that passing on this truth to others and multiplying it would be a great thing, such as educating other generations of disciples and kind of communicating the spiritual truth to others. That's a way of multiplying the talent and in what concerns your inner structure. That's also a matter of multiplying the talent. This is, as I say, a very disturbing one because it seems here that God is again unfair. The poor virgins waited for Him in the night and just because they were not prepared and opportunistic and foolish, ultimately, they lost the great opportunity. In the same one way, the one who was paralyzed by fear and buried the talent also had everything to lose because even the talent which he had was given to another one. Then God said, I prefer to take your talent and to give it to that one because that one doubles it up every time I give it to him. He doubles it up. It's a better investment for me as the divine to put my spirit and energy in that one who gives the results. And he comes back to that formidable statement which says those who have already will receive even more and they will have plenty, abundance, and those who do not have shall lose the little which they had. That is why, again, that sounds, uh, again, cruel. It's like God is doing something cruel, but remember that ultimately that is very wise and very real because it actually refers to the dynamic nature of evolution. If you look upon evolution in this dynamic way, you will see that it couldn't have been any other way. That in evolution, this had to be the rule. And he continues with the other parables. 
when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. That's again the messianic vision that the second time Jesus is not coming like let's do another uh, trip of ten tempting people. It's kind of they had their opportunity, now we are reaping the fruits of it in the end. So it's a matter of glory with the angels and everything. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in, per in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did, you did for me. Let's stop halfway through. This is a double parable. First of all, the first is the parable of the sheep and of the goat. The sheep to the right, the goat to the left. It's like in this parable the goats are presented as the baddies, but it's of course just a symbol. It has not, not much to do, as far as I am aware at least, with the real sheep and goats. Perhaps that's why the sheep-like symbols were used more for the righteous ones. The faithful are a flock. Uh, 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 and uh, Jesus is the shepherd and the uh, people are the lambs of God and Jesus himself is the lamb of God and it's like the sheep are the right ones and as about the goat in the old uh, Mediterranean uh, antique culture the goat was often a symbol of the devil the goat had the goat-footed one the Greeks consider all kinds of demonic entities to have goat feet and uh, even be because of this the devil in the later Christian mysticism was presented as having goat uh, feet, hoofs like the goats have or like the horses would have and stuff like that. So because of this remember it doesn't seem to have something to do with goat or sheep literally but from this many symbols have derived later in time. And here is uh, the paragraph where Jesus defines something very beautiful, very universal in the way that he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, and people ask when, and then he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Here Jesus proclaims the identity of himself and also the identity of the cosmic consciousness because he says the king will say, the king being God himself, the king will say this, it's like he proclaims the identity of God and the identity of himself with every single member, with every single limb, with every single 
participant in this mankind. He basically says if you give food to someone who is hungry, you give it to Jesus, you give it to God. This is very, very interesting because it's the only thing here which strikes back at this, which, which strikes positively back at this, uh, uh, at this famous theory of the Indians and Tibetans, but especially in India, of the identity of Atman. Atman is the same with Brahman. I am God, God is in me, Shiva is in me, and I am Shiva. This kind of identity where everybody is the cosmic consciousness in an incomprehensible and miraculous way, this thing in which the individual is identical to the cosmic, this is which is one of the specific things of the highest metaphysical teachings in Tibet and in Kashmir Shaivism and in the most abstruse forms of Vedanta, this truth, this fundamental, difficult to understand logically type of truth is said very clearly by Jesus. Only in the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of the Gospels which is apocryphal and therefore not accepted in the official Bible by the Church, Jesus says something like this, lift a stone, there you see me, look in a cleft, there you will see me. I cannot quote literally, but in the Gospel of Thomas there is something like this, lift a stone and I am there, look at the sky and I am there, wherever you look you will find me. It's like, wow! This is a statement which simply says God is everywhere, in a stone, in a place, in the air, in wherever, you will see God. This is so difficult to accept that, of course, uh, the theologians of the Christianity, they build a different type of theology and this will break down all their arguments. And that's why they cannot accept the Gospel of Thomas, because according to them, the Gospel of Thomas will lead to some form of pantheism, turning back to animism and shamanism and stuff, like there is spirit everywhere and God is everywhere. And then basically you could say that there is no more sacred and profane, there is no more clean and unclean, there is no more sin and virtue, because God is everything and God is everywhere. Of course, in the advanced metaphysical theories, this is actually explained properly and there is a way out of it, through a kind of superior logic, through a kind of intuitive spiritual understanding. But the Christian theologians, they try to build this thing simply logically in a very square, in a very elementary mulakara type of logic, and uh, it didn't work so. And because of this, Christianity has pulled its uh, understanding towards what is called a dualistic understanding. I talked about this already, and those of you, when you'll come to understand more things about Kashmir Shaivism and Vedanta, the high things of India, as well as some of the high theories of Anuttara Yoga Tantra of Tibet, you are going to see that uh, this is exactly the conflict, that uh, we are having a distinction between dualism and monism, like uh, unity. And, of course, the higher version is the non-dualistic version, the monistic version, but that is very difficult to understand logically, it is very difficult to experience it in your life with your mind, and it is also very difficult to carry in your daily life. And because of this, actually all these popular theologies which talk about heaven and hell, sin and virtue, they always divide things in light and shadow, in light and darkness. And therefore, there is the good guys, the bad guys, 
the God and the devil and all kind of opposites. And of course these are generating though all those philosophical questions. Like in Vedanta of India, if you make a duality between Brahman and Maya, as it is done like Brahman, Purusha, is real, and Maya, Prakriti, is unreal, as you remember from that philosophy course in yoga, then automatically the, the big question is then who created Maya? Is Maya real or unreal? Who created it? Because if it appears that it is created by the universal consciousness, Purusha or Brahman, then how can it be unreal? The real cannot create something which is unreal. The real can only create something which is a creation of that. And therefore it will result that Maya is real. And if you result that Maya is real, then you become Tantric. Because to say that Maya is real, it means to say that Maya is Shakti, it is the power of God. In the same way in Christianity, this duality is always coming to a stumbling point by the famous a dualistic type of question in which if there is God and the devil the question is then why is God more powerful than the devil because then it means there is a primordial inequity or a primordial imbalance in the universe and even worse the biggest question is if there is God and the devil then okay we understand nobody created God because God is the supreme the uncreated the absolute the original, whatever, then who created the devil? Here you are going to get lost in it because if you say nobody created the devil, it means the devil is as big as God because he didn't need anybody to create him and therefore uh, you, the devil is independent of God completely. If you say God created the devil, then God is the author of the evil because he created the devil and then why is the evil wrong anymore? since God himself created the evil. And both these answers are ridiculous in dualistic terms. And that is why the Christian theologians, they came with this believe and you shall not seek type of theory. You can literally read it in Christian theologians, that in Christian theology, that they say, and it's not only, it would be valid in Judaism and Islamism as well, because they are all of them dualistic. The conclusion will be the devil is... The evil, if you prefer, is neither created nor uncreated. Everybody understanding whatever they can out of this, this being a dogma. We don't discuss upon it and there is no need to argue on it. It just stays like this. The great saints who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit have come with this answer from God, especially for you, dear sheep, who are supposed to be obedient and stay quiet. The evil is neither created nor uncreated. Rest, don't ask this question again, please, because we have some other more urgent things to do. That's how the dualistic philosophies work. They eventually get stuck in something illogical, <coughs> because it cannot work that way. <coughs> that is why the highest metaphysical things on this world, the tops of Buddhism, the tops of Hinduism, the tops of Yoga and Tantra, and yes, the tops of Christian metaphysics in things like this, there is unity. Suddenly, Jesus says, I'm not different from you. I'm the same. Whatever you do to others, you do to me. There is a continuity. I'm the same tree. If you water the roots, it goes to the flowers as well. It's all the same. But uh, this statement is difficult, therefore, in this way, because here... Uh, 
Jesus is preaching a way of becoming on the right, going to the right hand of God. How did these people become good? Because they gave food to the hungry and they gave water to the thirsty and whatever. But at the same time, he is explaining the metaphysical basis of it. The creation is not separate from its creator. It is only seemingly separated from its creator, but it is not ultimately so. And this being said, there will be a few other secondary meanings here, which I hope I'll reach uh, when I finish, by the time I finish this paragraph. So, anyhow, Jesus here says very clearly, you are doing this to one, you are doing this to all. Somehow, somewhere, all life, all sentient beings are somehow related in a way. He speaks here mostly about human beings, but you know that the Buddhists have extended this to generally to sentient beings, saying that everything which is alive and everything which is consciousness automatically is coupled with all the other things. There are so many legends illustrating it in Buddhism, in Indian Tantra, I cannot go there right now, because it's not relevant right now, the idea is really clear. <coughs> so this is where Jesus speaks in a very Vedantic, in a very Tantric, in a very metaphysical way, showing, like pulling the veil, and showing one of the reasons of this ultimate oneness. <coughs> then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes? or sick or in prison and did not help you. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That is also the reason for which this general charity was preached. Anybody who knows in a traditional society, uh, they discover that in very traditionalist societies, uh, still guests are treated like God. In the old days, both in Christianity as well as in Islam, as well as in India, as well as in all the places of the world which were spiritualized, for example, travelers, guests, foreigners, people in need, people in trouble, they were treated like God. There, was, there were even proverbs which said, your guest is God. That means when he comes in your home, treat him well, treat him as Jesus came in, because if you give him, if he's thirsty and you give him water, it's like you gave water to Jesus. If he is hungry and you feed him, it's like you fed Jesus. If he is tired and has no place to sleep, it's like you sheltered Jesus for a night. <clears throat> and most of you, out of ignorance, would say, ah, if Jesus would come and visit me, I would do all this and more. I would do whatever to make happy a man like Jesus or at least one like Shivananda, or one like Yogananda, or whatever. But Jesus says, to, whoever, to whomever you do it, you do it to me. Remember that always, because today, this is a long-forgotten truth. It is a great truth, 
which has been forgotten. In the old days there was this injunction that people of spirituality should treat even people they did not know, guests and people who were in need, treating them as by indirect transmission to God. Whatever I do you, it is actually something which I am doing to God. That is why, uh, for example, when uh, people were receiving alms, there was a tradition, it is still practiced. Uh, today, people in, for example, in the Russian Orthodox environment, if they received clothes and food and all kind of alms, they always said Bogda Prosit, which would mean thank you to God. That means if I'm giving you food, you don't say thank you. You say thank God, because it's like this guy did it for God, and I received it in the name of God somehow, because if it wouldn't be this, probably he would never pay any attention to me, probably he would never give me anything. But the fact that he gives me something is actually not his. He's doing like a karma yoga. The thanks is to God. So in this way, this model was actually known and it generated a whole culture until the recent centuries when people started losing their faith and then they started re-becoming egoistic and not treating other people the way they should have been treated, the way Jesus recommends here. So in this way, <coughs> this uh, paragraph, this teaching is very, very clear and it uh, brings in it a lot of subject of meditation. When Jesus, we are already in number 26, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. They simply knew that people, simple people, did not have the same prejudices, and with their simple but common sense approach, they might have rioted for Jesus because Jerusalem was full of pilgrims at those days. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, this was a sign of like honoring kings pouring expensive perfume on people's head and anointing the legs and uh, uh, washing the feet and anointing them and stuff like this. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Actually, the history says that the one who professed this indignancy was Judas himself, who was the cashier of the group. That's one of the Christian superstitions. It seems to be taken from history, though. It's one of the Christian superstitions which says, See, the most uh, demonic man of the whole thing, he was also touching the money and dealing with the money and stealing out of the money for himself, one of the Gospels in the Bible said he was stealing for his own private interest some of it, and basically this would confirm that, see, money corrupts, because it's not a coincidence that the one who had the most dirty soul, he also was doing the thing with the money, and uh, he got corrupted, and he was corruptible, and he was this kind of person, 
and therefore he kind of is the one who also betrayed and all the rest of the things. We don't know if this is the pure truth, that indeed this was Judas, but anyhow here the one who expresses this expresses a little bit of a hypocrite thing like, you know, we could have done something better. This is uh, not a heartful thing, because from the heart he would have been joyful that uh, whatever. His idol was being treated very well, but uh, he was judging more like from Manipura. We can do a business here, things could be done, you know. I am a manager. Sometimes this managerial style is actually the opposite of the heart and sometimes the heart is very non-managerial, very non-organized uh, in this way. That's why many people are shocked by this, that sometimes the managerial person, very efficient type of gopher, Manipura type of solid business, they all the time have this sarcastic, cynical, materialistic, goal-oriented, effectivity-oriented style, which sometimes puts them off the track because they can never let go of some of their stiff prejudices. And sometimes, on the contrary, those Allah Ramakrishna and Yogananda, they are a bit of uh, financial or managerial catastrophes because they cannot really do any managerial thing, their heart being more like Francis of Assisi. You know, give him a boutique, he will, go it, he will drive it bankrupt in 48 hours or something because you will be so merciful and so heartful that you will give everything to everybody for free and then there will be nothing left. So this is almost like a conflict, Manipura Anahata, between these types. So one of them was the Manipura business-oriented like, and now it was too much. And he said, why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. It's like, what is this? It's a useless luxury for this Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And as you can see, we are reading about it even today. This woman, in her simple attempt to worship Jesus for what he was, he actually, Jesus praised her and he said, don't think economically, because the poor you'll have them always. This is a special opportunity, you have me here. It's not that Jesus was asking to be worshipped, because you know there is a time when he even washed the feet of his disciples and he said several times, I did not come to be served but to serve. But at the same time he is praising her heart. He says the value of this perfume is irrelevant. What matters is that this woman had a gesture and this gesture shows that her heart is singing, her heart is soaring, her, her heart is doing the right thing. And she's never thinking economically, oh my God, this is an expensive perfume. If I want to do a good gesture, let me buy some cheap one and do a good gesture. And then the expensive one, we sell it for good money. You cannot think like this. If you think like this, your heart is gone already. In your heart, you have to be a little bit forgetful of all these calculations of a managerial type, which of course uh, creates many difficulties if you want to organize things in this world.
Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is a very, very simplified account of it. Those of you who saw the Jesus movie, you saw the problem was more deep. It is in Judas, it is a mixture of loss of faith and falling on this rationalism from where all this Anahata Chakra sounds ridiculous. I have seen the case and uh, I have read about it in the case of many mystics who were so fluffy, such airheads, such... Uh, Anahata types of people that sometimes if around them there were manipuristic, managerial types of personality, they got irritated. It's like, ah, oh, this guy is spoiling everything. This guy, you know, we are trying to do a great business here and he is such an airhead and he is such a, you know, and you cannot really do business in these conditions. And it's like, then it's like the idea comes, if I were in charge here, I would be able to do things better, I think. This kind of this is completely, completely chaotic. We can't have that. Sometimes we must admit, you go in India, you see some of the traces of spiritual activities. Exception made of a few gurus who are very, very skillful, a la Shivananda, who seem to have both ends, who seem to be skillful at the same time with spiritual many others it's a miracle it's a typical indian chaos in which only the grace of god makes things work it's mm -hmm. kind of managerially it's kind of nothing you would expect everything to collapse every minute and it's like it's a complete complete chaos and somehow miraculously things keep limping and going and continuing and you don't really know how it's more like it comes through the angels and through the holy spirit rather than through any managerial talent and sometimes we have seen this kind of conflict I have seen it often that is why there are rare cases when it doesn't happen like when Paramahamsa Yogananda suddenly gets himself a pupil an American pupil this Mr. Lyne or Lynn or whatever he was who was a millionaire an American businessman and a millionaire and you know you would normally exp expect that an American millionaire will get completely fed up with a man like Yogananda and his Indian airhead type of way of being. Because it's kind of one is goal-oriented, does this, does this, does this, and the other one is a dreamer and a fluffy head and whatever, and you cannot really do anything uh, business-like with such a person. But funny enough, it seems that the spirituality of Mr. Lyne or Lin or whatever he was, was so great that he managed somehow to defeat his managerial ego and to understand Yogananda on a more spiritual basis, on a more spiritual wavelength. And that is why, uh, yes, here you see the same. It seems that Judas is the kind of managerial. He appears in history as having been the best educated of all the disciples of Jesus. Most of the others were fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, copper beaters, or what know what other base uh, jobs they had, the base education, basic education they had, while Judas was a bit of a scholar. And uh, this scholar, he was the one who could not understand that sometimes, I don't remember if it is in Matthew, uh, I remember it is not, I guess, 
that he is not understanding some of the things of Jesus because Jesus behaves recklessly in the temple as you remember from the movie perhaps those of you who saw the great Jesus movie and then uh, Judas says but why shouldn't we play ball a little bit with these priests and Pharisees and teachers of the law because if you give them what they want and if they just wanted to greet you you don't need to provoke them if you provoke them it's scandal for nothing and he says it's better to do it and fulfill your mission and Jesus says you do not understand and you try to understand it with your mind but don't try to understand it with your mind try to open your eyes and understand it with your heart try to see it and understand it with your heart and Judas cannot understand this because he all the time tries to rationalize it he needs to understand it with the mind that is why remember it's beautiful to understand things with the mind and we modern people we need a lot of logics and a lot of reason because else things are really really slippery for us but at the same time remember that our understanding shall not stop at a logical understanding a man like Jesus even when uh, metaphysical explanations are given is sometimes spontaneous inexplainable too much simply or something and because of this you cannot hope to understand him always with a mind sometimes you need a leap of faith sometimes you need to look at it with the heart to understand why this man is so special and therefore the story with Judas and all the things which pushed him to do this they are bigger and other Gospels explain more about this. The Gospel of Matthew simply says this guy got fed up and wanted to sell him up and so on. The thing is that of course he lost his faith trying to judge Jesus in a strictly materialistic, rational way. Sometimes Jesus became an airhead and a complete hippie, a complete loser, a complete bum, you know, and then... Uh, it's kind of, look, this man is building something. It's kind of shitty because at the same time he can walk on water and raise the dead. And on the other hand, he is such an airhead and such a little diplomatic person and such uh, this and such a that. And it's kind of, uh, then Judas says, ah, I wish I could take this Jesus and spank him a little bit and make him a guy to my like him. Like to my liking, like I would like him to still walk on water and still raise the dead, but behave the way I tell him to behave. Well, tough luck, that is not possible, really, and that always have failed, and when they tried to squeeze Jesus into this, it never worked, and it resulted in one of the most severe spiritual confusions, in one of the most sad spiritual misunderstandings, in the history of this planet, at least the part which we know of it. And that is why the story is more complicated, but it shows exactly this conflict between the rationalism, the objective, logical, managerial rationalism of Manipura Chakra and the bit of madness from Anahata, Vishuddha, Sahasrara, intuitive, spiritual, and yes, sometimes paradoxical, in which Jesus obviously is, and sometimes which cannot be understood by mere logic, and which even provokes the logic. Maybe we don't know all the details, maybe the church took out some details, maybe sometimes Jesus was doing this or that, which we don't know, and it was like everybody said, what? Our master who has been walking on water, 
now he is scratching his ass and sitting and doing nothing. It's kind of why, you know, he is such a wonderful man and look how he is wasting himself. Let's put him to work. It's kind of, you cannot push Jesus to do what he does not want to do. It's only a kind of a capitalistic uh, gopher, business-oriented, profit-oriented mentality, which would say, well, if we got Jesus around here, let's exploit him 24-7. He can do better. No, he could not do better because he did what God sent him to do. Not He was not in a... Uh, I don't know, you are not aware of the Russian culture, but in the Russian culture, in the communist Russian culture, there was a guy called Stakhanov, and it's called Stakhanovism. Stakhanov was a big bloke with a small head and a small brain, the typical ideal of the proletarian worker. A big buffalo full of muscles, but no brain and no personality. And this Stakhanov was the kind of worker who was always praised by Stalin and his likes because he always broke the norms. Every worker was supposed to carry 50 buckets of stones every day, Stahanovs carried, carried 60 and showed it's possible they moved the norm to 60, Stahanovs sweated out and did 65. He was always breaking the norms and because of this all the other people were pushed. They, because the leader said, well, if Stahanov can take 60, you can also shoot the 60 every day. So all the time the norms of work is like everybody worked 8 hours per day, Stahanov, out of devotion for the communism, stayed 10 hours at the job. And then everybody said, well, if Stakhanov can, then the daily program has just become 10 hours because Stakhanov has proven that it is possible, it is feasible. And this is called Stakhanovism, like, you know, we always want to break the norms and do things better. You cannot treat Jesus in a Stakhanovistic way, like trying to get him to break the norms, because Jesus does not wish to break the norms. His norms are very well defined, and even when he stays, he stays because he is meant to stay. Even when he is an airhead, he is an airhead because he is supposed to be an airhead and to give that model or whatever. And Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas here is most, is most often appearing as a Manipuristic person. Gurdjieff as being uh, a pro the provoker that he always <coughs> loved to be, Gurdjieff is coming with a weird theory that actually Judas and Jesus even had an agreement with each other and he read it in some apocryphal text or whatever that actually Jesus wanted things to happen that way and he had a secret deal with Judas that Judas shall do it like, uh, you know, playing games, setting him up in a way. This, however, is not confirmed by anything which either the Gnostic scriptures or everybody says, it is true that in the arresting of Jesus and the way he was dealt with, there are many mysterious things. Like you are going to see later, suddenly the Jews apparently complain, <coughs> well, we are, not, we are not allowed to kill this Jesus and let the Romans kill him. But on the other hand, that's false, because just a couple of months or something after Jesus is killed, there comes the time of the first Christian martyr, a guy called Stephen. Stephen is the first man in Christianity who took martyrdom. And Stephen was killed by stoning. He was stoned to death by the Jews. So wait a second. The Jews could kill people by stoning them. So why didn't they just stone Jesus and not involve the Romans in it? The fact that the Romans had to be involved into it and it was more like crucifixion, 
complicates the things. It's not as simple as that, because uh, you would normally expect that the Jews would have kept it hushed down, take the man, put 50 people to beat him up with stones, kill him, and that was the end of the story. But uh, the fact that it hit the fan like this and it reached with the Romans, it shows that the activity of Jesus were more vast. There were things which were political, in which the Roman Empire was... Jesus was indeed proclaimed as a kind of king, as the follower of David, as being from the seed of David and being the next king of the Jews. And things seem to be very complicated. As I told you, reading the things with Jesus, there are a lot of things which uh, shock the logical person. Logical analysis of the information which you have from the Gospels are strange, like Jesus was going with a handful of people and yet it was needed to have two cohorts of soldiers to send to arrest him. Jesus was a well-known public person who spoke in the temple and yet it was necessary for Judas to kiss him, to identify him, to show who the man was. But why? Jesus was well-known. He should have been quite a character and everybody should have known who this guy was. Why did you need the guy like Judas to identify him, to say that's the dude? There were tens and hundreds of witnesses. They didn't need an inside man to point Jesus, because Jesus, unless there is some story which we don't know. And that is why the things are a bit mysterious with the things of Judas. fact is that uh, in history, the example of Judas does not contain anything metaphysical or anything uh, esoteric. It has simply become to be considered the archetype of the person possessed by the ego, possessed by doubts, possessed by the devil, who is telepathically inspired to take the wrong decision, and this person being discontent and idiotic, actually does himself the greatest disservice, and at the same time he serves the diabolic plans more or less consciously. <coughs> On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This is supposed to be the event happening on Thursday evening or just before the Friday of the crucifixion. So it's like a festival which should have been just before the Passover. He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Even historically today, in the old city of Jerusalem, and one of them is actually outside of that, there are no less than three places where different sects and religious groupings, they claim that that's the room where the Passover, the dinner, the Last Supper actually happened. So it's not even known with 100% certainty where it happened. Even here it doesn't say the name of the person in the house with, with whom it happened and so on. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And here indeed this is the last moment and you see that the crowds are thinning down and Jesus is not with a great crowd of people. He is with the twelve with the inner circle of his disciples. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, 
surely not I, Lord. It's like, it's a very strange, if you think at this, this story has something which is always puzzling the mind. You can imagine the scene, like if we are 13 people in a room or there about, uh, it's kind of somebody says, you are going, one of you is going to betray me. It's kind of a, you know, Agatha Christie type of book, you know, let's select them down and see which is the one, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a very peculiar situation and it would be logical to think that people will start selecting, trying to identify who does this and the fact that actually even Jesus speaks obliquely about it, he doesn't point, although he points, at some point he seems to point quite obviously to Judas and actually nobody takes any steps, I mean, if I would be in a group with my spiritual master and uh, we'd be 12 and suddenly my teacher will point, Walter is about to betray me, I think I'll tie him down and tie him in the cellar or whatever, right? Mm. I would take a step or I would do something because I wouldn't want to let that happen or something. But nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to take any step. It's like it's still something mm. which is feasible, not clear, Jesus actually speaks to Judas and say, do this thing. And it's, that's why I say, this paragraph with Judas is not fully clarified how it really happened, what was the meaning behind it, what was the whole aspect of manipulation in this. And that's why I say you should be open-minded and in time perhaps some further insight will come through it. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Basically, he simply hears this paragraph. Either it is added later by the Church or not. I have not checked it in the Gnostic Gospels to see if it fits really with something from there, but it seems that here Jesus points clearly that it's not a deal, it's just a confusion, it's a diff, it's a dramatic, it's a tragic, it's a disastrous misunderstanding from the part of the one who does that, because he said it, it would be better for him if he had not been born. It's like, people can say, but why didn't Jesus... Uh, forgive him. Yes, actually Jesus forgave everybody as you see in the history but at the same time it seems that God wants to make an example and it's kind of beyond Jesus himself. It's like I, I can personally forgive you but at a higher level you need to be made an example of because that's how history is made and people need to learn something. So in this way, it's like you fell down into something really, really shitty. You are the one who plays the bad guy in this play. And uh, in this play, it's really, really bad to play the bad guy. You are getting a much, much worse deal than you thought you will get. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. <coughs> Jesus answered, Yes, it is you while they were eating, and this kind of, nobody does anything, you know, at least nobody hits him in the balls or something and <laughs> say, you asshole, or something, right? It's kind of, that's why it, this dialogue is a bit Ill, irrational. It has something really strange, and it's like taken from a <coughs> David Lynch movie or something like this. It's a bit <laughs> surreal in some way. It's uh, a bit crazy. 
While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. This is the scene, this is the final scene, where Christianity basically starts, this is the beginning of it, because this is the moment when Jesus defines the new sacraments. Each religion is based on some sacraments. In the Jewish religion, the sacraments, there are different sacraments, and some of them are like taking lambs and bringing them to the synagogue, and they were sacrificed on the altar, pouring their blood over the altar, or whatever they did with this, this and that, and actually the ultimate sacrament was the circumcision, is the circumcision itself, uh, that the young boys, that means the girls don't receive anything, that's one of the sad issues of Judaism, that actually women are considered auxiliaries to men, and there is not a proper baptism or anything for women, which is, uh, we discussed things about baptism and guardian angel and things like this, it's one of the pretty disturbing issues there. And the men who are considered to be the living souls, the real persons, they receive an initiation which is supposed to be the circumcision. So the foreskin is cut and the priest says, this is the seal in flesh of the covenant which our father Abraham did with God. It's like God made a deal with Abraham and told him from now on I will make you a very special group of people and to mark this, every male boy just cut his foreskin and this will be the sign and so on. This in itself is raising a lot of problems. What kind of deal is that? What kind of level of Godhead we are talking about? The fact that this ritual involves actual blood, which is more like a thing coming from shamanism, animism, magic, that it's a bloodshedding ritual and it doesn't really sound... Uh, like the angels want blood or everything. We don't go into that, but basically now Jesus is coming and bringing the new covenant. So he is simply coming and saying from today it shall be so. That means I am going and doing this, I receive the full power from God for this, and therefore the new ritual is not the cutting of the foreskin anymore, it becomes this. And it becomes, of course, the ritual of the bread and wine, the communion, the ritual of the communion. And Jesus simply defines it, and tons of theology have been written on this one. That means this is one of the cornerstones of Christianity, and tons of theology have been written about how literally this should be taken, how much of it is metaphysical, how much of it is philosophical, how much of it is symbolic, and all the rest, because he says he, he takes the bread, and it's a special bread, it's this, it's this, it is this unleavened bread, which is a, the typical sacred Jewish bread, and he breaks it, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. It's like, from now on, you commune with me by eating my body. It is really, really interesting to... Uh, know that especially in Tibetan Buddhism taking some weird things perhaps from the Bernpas they had some strange dictums which alluded to the fact that the Guru always takes over karma and it is more or less like <coughs> devoured by the disciples they say the disciples always kill their Guru the disciples always end by devouring their Guru it's like the Guru wants to help them so much and he is so much a Bodhisattva and so much full of compassion 
that eventually he will give too much and he will keep on giving and eventually he will be like eaten alive. It's, you can see that Ramana Maharishi died of cancer, Shivananda died of a form of cancer, others and others, Ramakrishna is a classic one and so on. And it's like you can say these people were like a, metaphorically, they were devoured by their disciples. They gave themselves so much and they helped so many people so much that eventually they collapsed under the weight of this karma and they did not regret it. They were willingly, they knew exactly what they were doing and they were willingly going to that extent of self-sacrifice. And this devouring of it, here it is, the disciples of Jesus eat his body. Uh, in Tibet, literally, some tantric schools of Tibet, if their guru were dying, they would simply eat parts of his body or completely his body, mm -hmm. believing, yes, yes, it's not a joke, that uh, they would eat it, because believing that in this way the spiritual influence is transmitted from the guru to them, because once the guru is dead, what should they do with the body? Bury it, give it to the vultures? Well, we can eat it also because it's the body of a very holy person, and so on, and it's a direct transmission. And it was not against the will of the gurus. This was known. The guru said, after I die, you can eat my body if you want or whatever, to pass on completely this spiritual, every bit of spiritual energy of me, or whatever, you can take it over. In this way, uh, people would uh, be doing a lot of uh, act of devotion like this. This going beyond this. I remember one of my Danish uh, pupils, who was also a very devoted Buddhist from the... Kagyu, he had been for many years ago in India at the time when uh, Karmapa had just been passing away and uh, Kargyutpa school was still young and everything. And because he was so devoted, somebody from uh, Sikkim, in, uh, where the Kargyutpa was in Sikkim in Gangtok, they did him a great favor. They allowed him to taste. They had some granules which was supposed to be fossilized shit of the karmapa. They are eating the shit of the karmapa, considering that even that one is holy, because if it comes from a man who is super enlightened since 16 lives, and who can feel 10,000 bodies simultaneously or whatever, then what is impossible for such a man? So they are drying up the shit of it, and exactly, yes, as you eat yak dung, and all kind of uh, cow shit and whatever in Chinese medicine and Indian medicine, surely then why should you believe that the shit of karmapa is inferior to the cow, to the yak dung, which can also be used if you dry it up, used as a medical item. So in this way, surely it is uh, revulsive to think about this and it probably turns your stomach inside out to think, oh my God, somebody should eat uh, or whatever. But it's a matter, first of all, of faith, of absolute faith and devotion and surrender. And it is the matter that these people contemplated the transmission of something organic, a kind of direct spiritual transmission. This is the same in the case of Jesus, showing exactly like he does it metaphorically, but still he transmits it. He does it magically. And uh, it raises the question of how much Jesus must have been uh, in touch with these Indian and Tibetan traditions in which such things uh, were already heard of. <coughs> so he says, take and eat. This is my body. So with this, it's a lot of theology can be done. If this is my body and you eat it, my body is in you. I am becoming part of you. You are me. I am you. It's the same. 
whoever did this to any of my brothers did it to me. I am everyone. It's like the whole humanity is the body of Jesus. We can speculate about a lot of things which are there and uh, this communion has its own upsides and downsides. Like uh, on the other hand, the mystics say that if you take communion without being prepared, it can actually be terribly nasty because it's like you swallow fire or whatever because... Uh, it's like you are not prepared for the contact with something so high and so holy and it can actually burn you exactly as a fire from within. Uh, there is a lot of stuff but we cannot go there. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, gave thanks, which means blessing, right? And offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So he tells them this is the Last Supper. He tells them this is a method of redemption. So this time the blood is symbolized by wine. This automatically makes that while some churches are pretty loose on this, this means obviously red wine. It seems that the predominant type of grapes growing in the... Uh, Judaic area in those days were small and black in color, so the wine resulting from them was a dark colored wine, was a black red wine, uh, which could be assimilated with blood. It also says bread and wine are somehow assimilable with Christ, they are somehow assimilable with uh, spirituality. If you look upon it, bread, which in those days were made exclusively of wheat, this typical bread was supposed to be made exclusively of wheat, but wheat is considered the most sacred cereal. It is considered to be the cereal of man. Until today, the, some peasants in the back, backwards uh, parts of Romania, they have this kind of popular folklore. They say if you look at a grain of wheat, you can see the face of Jesus in it or whatever. It's like wheat is Jesus, Jesus is wheat, wheat is God, wheat is given by God specially for mankind. If you eat just wheat you can survive a whole life. That is why for example Michelangelo, the great painter, very few of you probably know that uh, Michelangelo, the great painter, lived the last years of his life on bread and wine. Basically this guy was just eating bread and wine. He was almost not drinking water. He lived like in an eternal communion, bread and wine. And uh, probably he was drunk most of the time because of if you drink wine all the time, obviously. But this may kept him in this ecstatic state of creativity where he was completely wired up and uh, probably also becoming very, very light. You can try to keep a diet of bread and wine for two months to see where it takes you. Probably feel like flying every minute of your life and your body becomes light and everything because there is really nothing heavy. Remember that wheat is so complete that most people consider that actually with wheat, germinated wheat, whatever, because also sometimes if you add yeast to it and so on, it will have everything you need and actually you can survive only on that, also by biological transmutation and all the other things, that wheat is the most simple, complete item of food that you can find for the human being and so on. Wheat is on Mulakara Chakra, according to yoga, so it's the basic vitality, and wine is on Anahata Chakra, according to Tantric Yoga, and that would be Jivatman, 
and the vitality of the soul. And therefore, when you say bread and wine, you say Muladhara Anahata, the two chakras which carry our two forms of basic vitality. That is why it is many, many reasons for this thing with bread and wine. And actually, many people, this is where the discussion comes, if Jesus indeed spoke about bread and fish when he multiplied it, or it's a mistranslation from Aramaic, where actually, <coughs> which becomes so in Greek, but in Aramaic it was uh, different, because we don't have the original text in Aramaic, exception made of the Gospel of Thomas and a few of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, where the word which they say is used for fish can also be translated as grapes. And then we're talking about bread and grapes, not bread and fish, exactly as that would be bread and wine, because bread and grapes is more or less the same thing with bread and wine. <coughs> and that's why uh, there is here a lot of alternatives to this truth. But fact is that here also Jesus says, bread can easily be transfigured into flesh. It has something like that. And wine can be easily transfigured into blood. It has something like that. Even in normal superstition, people say, drink a, drink a glass of red wine, it will regenerate your blood. If you drink a glass of red wine, it's good for you. If you lost a lot of blood, or you were ill, or a woman who had her period and bled a lot, drink a glass of red wine, because it builds red corpuscles in your blood, and so on. And it's like, yes, red wine has something to do with blood. Even Ayurvedic medicine would agree that if you drink red wine, it may contribute to increasing the amount of blood in your body. And that is why all these things need to be considered. This story is, uh, is liable to be read in many ways. But this is the way Jesus institutes the foundation of Christianity, the main of all of them, the communion. He simply declares magically, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. Every time you do this, you can actually commune with me. You can become part with me if you feel prepared for that. And he tells them then, I will be gone. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I will stop here, we're in the middle of the paragraph 26, there is only one major one to go, which probably will manage to do it on Thursday. Uh, we are in the middle of the end, the end of the Last Supper. The end of the Last Supper, I should have perhaps uh, insisted more on it, and maybe I'll do it next time, now being so late as far as I can see. It is actually a crucial moment if we insisted and described so much the moment of transfiguration of Christ, and I told you the importance of the transfiguration of that special light on meditating in Akasha upon that moment, and putting it like the referential moment zero, definitory of Jesus, in the same way you can say that this moment of the Last <coughs> Supper is again a magic moment in the history of the world. It is basically when Jesus, who acts as God, simply says from tonight, this is the new covenant. Basically, the history of humanity looked upon uh, in a Judeo-Christian continuity is like this. The first man was the child of God, Adam, 
Adam and Eve were the dear children of God, but they have been going and doing the naughty, and they have been disobedient, and therefore God kicked them out of the kingdom of heaven, and ever since they were under a curse, they were out of paradise, so they started living and toiling like animals, and they started from that hard life, and that generation of Adam and Eve, with their children and grandchildren and all the humanity that came after, <coughs> it came on and on, and uh, it's kind of, all of them were more or less under the anger of God, because starting with Adam, he and all his descendants were punished. They were under the displeasure of God. And therefore, it's like God is always angry, sometimes very angry, like in the time of Noah, when he really wipes out the majority, or he is very angry locally, like at the places of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he wipes out two cities and so on. And uh, sometimes he is really, really angry. Sometimes he is just smolderingly angry, like, ah, this human race, all of them off, awful, all of them offspring of sin, all of them whatever. And basically, what the human beings did until then is like striking a bargain, like Abraham is striking a bargain with uh, God, and God says, okay, among all these uh, punished people that you all are, I am choosing some which are punished less. Not that I forgave you, but uh, it's kind of I'm making a bit of a more special deal with you guys. And then there is another special deal done with Moses, which does not change that one radically, but it's like I gave you some commandments and things, and people were not very good at keeping it, were they? As soon as Moses disappeared a little bit, they started worshipping a golden calf and all the others, and again the anger of God flared out and punished them a little bit more, and it was a never-ending story. And finally... The redemption seems to be full at the time of Jesus because both Abraham and Noah and uh, Moses, they were prophets, they were human beings. But this Jesus is supposed to be God himself. He's not a prophet anymore. He is already the avatar. He is a divine being. And he comes and he has the power to do the deal himself. Now he acts for God. He acts as God. And therefore he comes and says, it's kind of, I have the good news, is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I came to tell you, God is not angry anymore because of this sacrifice. He sent me, I redeemed the human race. The human race, if one of its members, if one flesh and blood of its members, if one 46 chromosome dude managed to do what I did through this body, then it's like the whole humanity is redeemed again because we, can al we already blossomed. The first flower has appeared in this way. And in this way, the message of Jesus is what Adam broke, Jesus fixed up again. That is why uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is called the second Eve. What Eve fucked up, Mary fixed up. What, what Eve spoiled, Mary fixed up by creating a being like Jesus, by bringing to the world a being like Jesus. And in this way, this is a story of redemption. It goes so deep that the place where Jesus is crucified is called Golgotha, and Golgotha is to believe, is meant to mean the place of the skull. What skull? 
Some people say the stone of the Golgotha looks as a skull. Actually, the Christian uh, legends, they say it's called the place of the skull because in that place, secretly, without anybody knowing, Adam was buried. So the, the skeleton of Adam, the skull of Adam, was in that mound of stone there. And when Jesus got crucified, a drop of his blood dripped on the earth. And in that moment, there was that earthquake and the Golgotha cracked. And in this way, Adam was released. Because even Adam was still under a curse since thousands of years. And so was everybody else. They looked like relatively better than the others. But it was relatively because ultimately they were still in the dark zone. They were still under the anger of God. And only with Jesus it actually ends. Jesus being God himself and comes that is why I told you this story, and I could insist more, to show you the meaning, the colossal metaphysical meaning which is given to this episode. That God himself comes and says, now there is no more need for the convent of Abraham and Moses. Now God has wiped, has wiped the slate clean, and we are ready for a new beginning. And therefore, you are again the children of God. You can again do this and this, if you are in your heart if you do this that's basically the message of the heart the good news is your captivity is over that's what Jesus tells them people say what good news have you got to bring and he says the good news is the good tidings are that your captivity is over and he means your captivity in sin your captivity in this curse <clears throat> therefore what Jesus does is he simply settles the new sacramental connection that this is the way you relate to God from now on. In this way, uh, surely after that, uh, as you know, of course, in history, the disciples of Jesus went along that way, and of course this took a certain number of centuries in history before it was clarified properly, and things, uh, still there are many things there. This Last Supper, therefore, is an incredible, incredible thing. Because imagine what a power a spirit should have. Like you say, well, what a power should a man have to be able to raise the dead from the grave and to bring Lazarus forth after four days and to walk on the sea and materialize bread and fish for thousands of people. And that's a power, right? But what a power should a person do to have the power to click the fingers and to say from now on, this is the sign of the covenant with God. It's like defining <coughs> the link, defining the, 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 how to call it, the language, defining the salutation which you give to God. From today, the salutation, the relationship has changed. It becomes this. This is the body and the blood of God. This is the way you relate. It is also, many people do not hesitate saying, much more sattvic, because bread and wine and whatever, it's already blood is symbolic, and many people have very serious doubts when it comes to sacrifices, which involve bloodshed, killing of animals like sacrificing lambs and others, as well as the circumcision itself, which is a form of bloodshed in its own way. That is why this is uh, the place where Jesus brings something much more sattvic. He says we celebrate here something sattvic and symbolic. This is the body and blood of God. 
this is the union with the body and blood of God. You don't really need to drink some real blood or to spray some real blood or to do something. It's not about that. And this is confirmed about by all the metaphysic traditions. The Tibetans themselves, being Buddhist and being compassionate, although many Buddhists, even in Tibet, they were non-vegetarian, and some of them obliged by the geographical conditions, but sometimes even in Thailand and places like this, Buddhists are not vegetarian and they are not obliged by the climatic conditions because they could very easily be vegetarian. So, this is a, another argument here, but the Tibetans decrying the blood sacrifices and the animal sacrifices because some Tibetan tantric schools, they did things like this which were a bit witchcraft, a bit magic, and as you know, in India, some tantrics did it and they still do it. There are still temples in India where they sacrifice goats every day, like in Calcutta and other places, and there are festivals when they kill thousands of goats, and it's an ocean of blood, it's something incredible. And many people say, well, how can this be spiritual? I mean, why should Kali or whatever need blood? It's really like, this is like black magic. It's like some form of lowly magic. It's kind of, it doesn't really sound divine. It doesn't smell divine. It doesn't feel divine. It doesn't, intellectually, it doesn't say anything divine. And the Tibetan gurus, the Tibetan bodhisattvas, they said the same thing. Killing animals and offering them as sacrifice to God is exactly like killing a small child and offering it to his mother as an offer. The, the gods cannot lie. Only the perverse gods, only the lowly demonic spirits can like offerings of blood and so on. The high gods cannot like that because they are sattvic. They are divine. For them, they experience a state of communion. To, to kill one of their own and offer it to them it's like an act of abuse, you know, like killing ten bulls and offering it to some god. But why should that god be pleased that you offered bulls to him unless it's a real low type of spirit which feeds itself with the prana of those bulls, with the life force of those bulls. But an entity which needs that is not divine, it's much lower than something divine. And therefore, all these things which involve bloodshed they are looked upon with great suspicion by the sattvic people in spirituality. Like as soon as blood comes in, things are not clean anymore. We are talking about some lower levels here. And it is true that in Tantra sometimes things can go on the lower levels if you know what you are doing, like with the sexual energy and the others, but still one needs to exert great caution when it comes to this, especially when it comes to sacrifice. Because it's one thing that I told in the Tantra workshop that some tantrics could ingest menstrual blood or whatever and it's an entirely different thing to kill an animal and to bleed it to death and whatever other practices people have invented. And that is why <coughs> uh, here indeed Jesus is radical. He comes up with something new, sattvic, bright, symbolic, metaphysic, irreproachable in a way and he is giving a new symbol of the covenant which comes through him and as you are going to see he perfects that in the coming paragraphs which we are going to read on Thursday. I will stop here it is already over midnight let's see if you have any big questions problems, issues 
after which let us part for tonight since this evening. Let us stop here. The next lecture on Thursday will still be a Jesus lecture. We try to finish the Gospel of Matthew, so we finish in this season with the whole of it. We'll need one or two lectures, depending how quick it goes and how many comments I have to do besides that. If we don't finish it Thursday, then we'll finish it next week on Tuesday, one more.